right. Everybody take a deep breath. The holidays are over. For some of us, that's a sad thing. For some of us who are working through family relations, you're like, yes, right? No, I love my in-laws. I love my family. Um, now that this is being videoed, I am going to be just leave it at that, right? <laughs> Good call. My wife smiles. Uh, no, uh, in all seriousness, the holidays are a great time and is a great time to spend time with family and uh, especially those you don't always get to see all the time. So uh, we are going to be continuing in the book of Mark. It's been a, a month uh, Travis left us off at the end of chapter 12 with the widow and her offering at the temple. And so we are going to pick up in Mark chapter 13 this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to read Mark chapter 13 verses 1 through 27. So once you have that, if you would stand with us as we read Mark chapter 13 starting at verse 1 through verse 27. Starting at verse 1 it says, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and of rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. 
But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of your coming. We thank you for just the time as we reflect even now about your greatness and your glory. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. We are, of course, in that last week. If you remember, uh, we started a, a couple of months ago, actually, talking about the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And just to put it and remind us of the context, Jesus has been in the temple for some time. Uh, I believe it's Tuesday of that week. I, I don't have it exactly written down. I didn't look at that specifically. But uh, he's been in there teaching. He's addressed uh, those critics who have been trying to trick him. He's been answering question after question about things like the resurrection and marriage and, and, and dealing with the tricks that they were trying to trap him in. And he's brought the disciples together and they observed the, the temple uh, offering, you know, sitting back, watching as this widow gives all that she has. And Jesus calls them to himself and he says, this woman has given more than all that's been given today. In the midst of this, they leave the temple, uh, the disciples couldn't resist pointing out to Jesus this object of glory, their temple. And so begins what is called in, in our vernacular so oftentimes the Olivet Discourse, which can be confusing, it can be debated, it can be difficult, and, and I'm just going to lay it out there. I, I get teased all the time for saying, oh, that's my, this is my favorite passage of Scripture. I say that about almost every passage of the Bible. This is not one of my favorite passages of Scripture, okay? It doesn't mean it's bad or anything like that. I love all Scripture. But I am very, uh, my brain, the way it works, I have to understand something before I'm willing to teach on it. And, and if it doesn't fully jive and make sense, I struggle with that, Okay. And so I'm just going to lay it out there. If you're going to come and correct my eschatology afterwards, don't bother. Because whether I die for Christ in a tribulation or I'm raptured before it all happens, I'm going to see Jesus face to face, and I don't care the order of how it happens. But I am going to talk through this because Jesus lays it out here for us, and I think it's important uh, uh, to just kind of walk through some things, and there are some incredibly important uh, points of application for our life today. And so we want to walk through this, and we're going to start at verse 1. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple was an incredible thing. It was a man-made marvel. Uh, many have said that if the uh, seven ancient wonders of the world had been written at the time of the temple, it would have been included in that. I mean, you're talking about a constructed building that took something like 40 years to build. 
You know, we, we get frustrated. I, I saw that they're putting in a new donut shop kind of close to me, and it's been under construction for, for a long time. I'm like, when is it going to be done? You know, it's been like three months at least. This took 40 years. It's an architectural marvel like the pyramids. Some of the blocks are, are some 50 feet wide. I mean, grasp that. 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, and 15 feet deep. A modern crane cannot pick them up. That's amazing. And so it's no wonder that to the Jew, when they saw this architectural wonder, they would pull Jesus aside and be like, Hey, Jesus, did you see that temple? How incredible it is? I mean, it is amazing. It took some 10,000 workers to put it together. 46 years they had been building it up till this time. And then Jesus says, do you see this great building? I can, I can see Jesus with a smile. Yeah, you see this great building? Not one stone will be left upon another. Jesus' response, it's nothing. That's, that's great. You know, the, the temple to many Jews had become an idol. It had been more glorious than, than God himself to the fact that even in their own writings and their own traditions, they would say, hey, if you swear by God, that's one thing, but if you swear by the temple, how dare you break that? And Jesus says, not one will be left upon another. And within 40 years, this was actually fulfilled as uh, the uh, Roman uh, general Titus marches into Jerusalem and, and a fire erupts in the temple on accident and it, it was such a hot fire that the gold literally melted from the ceiling and seeped in between the cracks and Titus was so infuriated he wanted the gold that he ordered that the blocks literally be removed one from another in order to gather up all the gold that had seeped in the cracks. And today, to this day, the destruction was so complete, so utterly uh, 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 destructive that as they try and reconstruct in their own mind today, they still can't figure out how the pieces fit together. Within 40 years. You know, you could have a side application with this that we could just pause on and ponder. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not impressed with your work. Because he's got redemption work that he is doing. And it is far greater than any work that we can do. So they leave the temple. Jesus kind of answers them. And, and you can see, it says, And as they sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, I've been to the Mount of Olives. It's an incredible view of the temple and what's left of it, the Temple Mount today. But you can just see, I can, I can picture this in my mind, Peter and James and John sitting there on the hillside looking at the temple at this thing that Jesus has basically just said, yeah, that's nothing. And you can see the wheels spinning in their mind that Jesus has just totally uh, taken what they thought was this glorious structure and Jesus said, yeah, that's going to be just destroyed and, and not one stone will be left on another. And, and as they're sitting there pondering it, they ask the question, to Jesus, it's it's two part question, but in their mind, it was probably just a one part question. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of all these things that they are about to be accomplished? Two questions: When will this happen, and how will we know when it is happening? 
And so starts the intrigue of century after century after century. Let me tell you something. If we wanted to fill this church, we could just spend all of our time preaching on the end times. People are fascinated by it. When, when uh, a couple of guys wrote a book series called Left Behind, it sold over 50 million copies. When the last... That's right. When the last one came out, they had to reprint it after two weeks. They had to produce two million more copies. Four movies and even a video game. Because people are fascinated with the end times. They want to know all about it. They want to understand it. They want to get into it. In fact, the disciples were so intrigued by it that when Jesus raises from the dead, you know one of the first questions they ask him? Is it now? Acts 1.6, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this the end? Everybody is fascinated with it. So if you want to fill your churches, have end times prophecy teachings over and over again. But if you want to empty your churches, I find it ironic, have teachings about the importance of prayer and evangelism. We get wrapped up in this because it's interesting, it's intriguing, it's a mystery. And, you know, sometimes when I sit here and I struggle with it and I think, well, God, why can't I make sense of all this? How can I, you know, I wonder, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, why didn't they get the Passover feast? That Jesus would be the lamb and this was a representation. It's easy for us to look back and see what has been accomplished and understand it. And I believe that one day we will look back at some of this stuff and we will see it and it will be like, oh. Why did we not see that? But we're not there. And so speculation happens. So when will it happen? And how will we know when it is happening? And I'm going to give you the answers right now. I'm not. So Jesus is going to go on, though, and he's going to give them a flow of history until his return, starting at verse 5. He says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the happening of birth pains. And I'm going to try and walk through some of this. There is, you know, I have I've read theologians that I respect, and I'm amazed that one person will say, this is what this means, and then the next person will say, this is the exact opposite. Respected, guys. And so all that to say, when Jesus says, I'm not willing to share some of the details, we should leave it at that. It's usually agreed, though, that mostly this part that we have just read about refers to what Jesus is referencing up till the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Okay? Again, if you're going to try and correct me afterwards, I'm not going to care, so don't bother. I'm telling you what I believe this probably is indicating. So, think through this with me. This segment is, is about when Jesus is, is predicting that uh, there will be tribulation for specifically his audience, which is the disciples and the believers in Jerusalem. Okay? I think that's important, and we can look at it in the context. In verse 32 of the same chapter, Jesus is going to literally say, uh, I'm sorry, not verse 32, but uh, verse 
30, he says um, that this will truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Typically in the Bible, a generation is about 40 years. Over and over again, we can find generations lasting when it's referenced. Generation, it's typically 40 years. Guess what? 40 years from now, Jerusalem would fall and the temple will be destroyed. It is very likely that what Jesus is describing right now in this part is specific to those disciples and the believers that will be in Jerusalem. And we'll talk a little bit about that, um, but I'm not going to stake my life and death on it, okay? Uh, and it's not to say, and we'll talk about this briefly as well, that there are partial fulfillments and there are double fulfillments where things happen once and they're going to happen again, okay? Verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 5, going through it again, Jesus kind of gives them some warnings of things that will take place in their lifetime. There'll be a warning, take heed, be careful. There are going to be people that come out and, and say that they are Christ's, and there's going to be wars, and there's going to be rumors of wars. And he says, don't be surprised. These things must take place. They're going to take place. And, and, and they are only the beginning. There'll be earthquakes, and there'll be famines. And we can look today, if you want to say that there's a double fulfillment of this, that's fine. There are these things happening today. If nothing else, you can read this, and you can say, we shouldn't be shocked by it. It's happened once, it's going to happen again. And it's only the beginning. Every generation thinks that their generation is the last generation. That's history. The, the disciples, there are some theologians who actually say that when the disciples sold all that they had and gathered together, that that was in, as a result because they thought Jesus was coming back immediately. And some theologians will actually say that, that the result of them gathering money from the churches in Asia was because they had sold everything and now they were poor. And they had done it as a mistake. I'm not saying that that's the case, but it is an interesting thought. Every generation thinks we are the last generation. You go back to, to the 1940s and everybody thought Hitler was the Antichrist. This is the end. Then when the Jewish state became a country again, everybody thought this is the end. Everybody thinks it's the end. And we're getting closer. There's no doubt about that. I read one prophecy one time that was amazing. I don't know that it was a prophecy, but one statement on a prophecy website, it said that we are now closer to the end than any generation before. That is the safest end times prediction you can make. I guarantee you, it is always right. It'll be even more right tomorrow if there's a tomorrow. Jesus then addresses some specifics for his disciples, starting at verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. Do, do we not read this? In the very book of Acts, fulfilled before our very eyes, that they were beaten in synagogues, which, by the way, is a good indicator that Jesus is talking specifically to these disciples, uh, that they were beaten in synagogues, and that they would be brought before governors and kings. Paul was brought before governors and kings, and many other disciples brought before governors and kings. And I love verse 10. And it should be a standalone verse for us. And it is the reality if we get sidetracked with all the fascination of trying to figure dates and times and years and weeks and whatever, we ought to bring ourselves, I almost feel like Jesus put this verse right in the middle on purpose. Because it is so easy to get sidetracked. 
He says in verse 10, and the gospel must be proclaimed. It must first be proclaimed to all nations. And that is the reality. That is our responsibility. And truly, did it not spread during that time frame? The persecution that fell upon those first churches is, is the very, very source, the, the dispersa, the dispersion of believers out of Jerusalem is what spurred the gospel on to be preached throughout all the nations. And then we have a beautiful promise. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit's aid in the midst of it. And then he talks about brother delivering brother and children delivering fathers and fathers delivering children and family against family. And there'll be death and there'll be hatred. And that is the reality of the depths of the pain and the suffering that these men and women of that first century church would face. Does this mean it won't happen again? No, I'm not saying that. It could very well be that this is a model that has happened for them that will one day happen again for us. And if it does, brothers and sisters, it's told to us so that we can be prepared. Prepared for what? Be on your guard. And then Jesus continues, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What? That's a fun one. The abomination that's, uh, that causes desolation. What is that? Where does it come from? And, and it's a reference from Daniel chapter 9. Uh, again, a difficult and, and, and disputed passage. It does have some fixed points, though, that we can kind of look at. And I, and I think it's important that we understand it. So let's start first by breaking down abomination that causes desolation. Abomination just simply means a, a horrific sin. Oftentimes it's idolatry. Sometimes it's referred to as sexual sin. It is something horrific, though. Okay? I want you to understand that. Abomination is not some snowman, um, but it is something horrific. It's a horrific sin. And desolation just means to cause to lay waste, to make it empty, to make it void, to, to, to lay it to waste. And so the idea here is that an abomination, something so horrific that causes something to be made desolate, laid waste of no use. And oftentimes this is referenced back to, it's actually mentioned five times in the, in the Word, uh, twice I believe in Daniel and then three times in the Gospels, okay? So it's referencing back to Daniel chapter 9, specifically is the first time it's used. In verses 26 and 27, it refers to a prince who will destroy the city, meaning Jerusalem, along with its, temples, with its temple and the sacrifices. And it says, quote, And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. And then two chapters later in chapter 11, there's another reference to an abomination in connection to the temple. And it says, uh, forces from him 
shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. All right, I'm going to try and kind of break this up for you a little bit. Okay, Daniel makes this prediction. It's not Daniel's prediction. It's the, uh, the, the Spirit of God upon him. He talks about a man that would come in and, and lay waste to Jerusalem and he would enter into the temple and he would cause an abomination that causes the temple to cease its sacrifices and to make it a place of desolation. Okay, does that comprehend? If not, that's just, it's confusing, okay? I'm not going to deny that. So oftentimes, most scholars generally see the first reverence of this as, as being fulfilled in, in, in a man who was a king called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He ruled Palestine from 175 to 64 BC. This is really classroomish. I'm sorry, but it's important to understand. Antiochus, he, he was an evil person. Okay? He treated the Jews harshly. He was a man that, that ruled with an iron fist. And there was a rebellion in the midst of it. He came in. He put an end to it. His forces entered the temple. They stopped the sacrifices. And they set up an altar for Zeus, which is the abomination. And there are some that say that he actually uh, uh, sacrificed swine or pigs on the very altar, which would have desecrated the Holy of Holies. Okay, keep in mind, Judaism, holy of holies, only the high priest once a year can enter into there. A king who is a, a Gentile walks in there, sets up a temple to an, an idol, to a, a false god, offers an unclean animal as a sacrifice to boot on top of it, and totally desecrates the holy of holies. And this abomination was idolatry, and it caused it to be defiled. Okay? That was around, uh, I think, around 60 B.C. So, coming back to this present text, most people, it seems like it would make sense, would agree that Jesus is predicting another one. He says, when you see the abomination that, stands in, that causes desolation, let the reader understand. Uh, it, A.D. 70... So this is around A.D. 30, about 40 years later, the Roman Empire walks into Jerusalem because of rebellion. Titus, the general, comes in, destroys the temple, brings in idolatrous images of the emperor whom they worship, sets it in the Holy of Holies. Temple's destroyed, defiled. And he says, let the reader understand and we want to focus on that and i also would conclude that it certainly seems likely that there will be another fulfillment of this and you can read about that in second thessalonians 2 okay there are many times in scripture where a prophecy is made it is fulfilled and maybe it's fulfilled again there are many types of antichrist there are many people who, it appears, were the Antichrist. And, and there is a reality that we are going to hit home on towards the end of this, okay? I want to just further cement the idea that Jesus here is probably predicting the Roman Empire coming in and destroying the temple in A.D. 70, okay? He says, first of all, let the reader understand. This was written before that destruction. So it was for those who are reading this very thing. And he says, when you see this take place, leave Judea. 
Leave Jerusalem. Flee to the mountains. Luke further clarifies it in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. He says, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, run to the mountains. In fact, many Christians during that time when they saw the armies, when they saw this happen, literally fled Jerusalem. And Eusebius, the great historian, actually said that the church in Jerusalem fled as a result, sparing their lives and preserving the church in a neighboring town called Pella. So it appears to me as I read through this that that when he's talking about fleeing and and all these things that happen, it, it appears to me that Jesus gives the readers instructions on how to live during those perilous times. And he says, all these things I have written beforehand. So when you see it, this is what you're supposed to do. And it is a pretty gruesome time. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down. You better go. Don't waste time take anything, uh, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, but go. And alas, for women who are pregnant and the, for those who are nursing in, in those days, there's an exclamation point as if to say, wow, this is going to be hard. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. Sounds like a perilous time. Could we one day face something similar We very well could. Jesus goes on, he says in verse 24, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is a glorious passage. Jesus concludes this this part right here that we're talking about this morning by telling of His coming after that tribulation. When exactly? I don't know. And neither was Jesus telling. Because the timing isn't what's important. We sit here and we open up Daniel and we talk about weeks and, and, and the, what do the weeks represent and so forth. Listen, you can do that. That's fine, I guess. But don't bring me into it because it's just going to make my head explode and I don't understand it. And to be honest, when Jesus says, let's not come with hubris and say this is when it's going to be. When Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Let's not come with arrogance and say, I've got it figured out when Jesus says, I don't even know. Why is that? Because that's not what's important. What is important? So many things. What I do know is that this creation will be coming to an end. 1 Peter 3.10 tells us that... uh, I'm sorry, that's not the right verse. In 1 Peter, there's a verse that talks about how the earth will melt and it will all be destroyed. We have created an idolatry of this world. I am not saying don't be a good steward, but it is not our mission in life to save the world. Because God's going to destroy it. 
Brothers and sisters, we want to talk about a temple being glorious. This world, which is God's creation, is far more glorious and took far greater splendor to create. And God says, I will make it melt. This world is not our home. It is not our precious commodity. It is to be used of us. I'm not, again, Uh, advocating irresponsibility. I'm advocating good stewardship, but let us not worship Mother Earth because it is not our Creator. It is no wonder that in Romans we are told that we will replace the Creator with created things. It goes on, it says that He will come and they will see Him in glory. It will be unmistakable. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you do not need to fear missing Jesus returning. When people say, I am the Christ, when people say, I am He, you're not going to be mistaken and think, well, maybe I'll follow. No, no, it says that the elect will not be deceived. You are not going to mistake His return. It will be triumphant. It will be glorious. It will be unmistakable. You will not be left behind. And brothers and sisters, one of my favorite things that I took out of this passage that I love so much is at the end of this verse 27, it says that he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Most theologians, if you believe in the rapture that is going to happen pre-trib, and, and I'm, again, I'm not going to debate it with you, um, if you believe that, then this is probably referencing those who come to Christ during the tribulation. But here's what's the takeaway that is so encouraging. He's going to send out his angels to gather his children. None will be left behind. If you are in Christ, he's going to gather you. You will not be left behind. He is coming for his children. They are his precious treasure that he has valued, that he sings over, that he rejoices in, that he desires, that is his portion out of this entire creation. The thing that he wants is his people, and he will send his angels to all the ends of the earth to gather them up for himself. And traditionally, the belief oftentimes is that we will be gathered who are dead, we'll rise with Christ, and we will meet uh, Jesus and the Lord in in the heavens as, as He is coming and descending, and we will gather with the saints, and what a glorious day that will be. A day of rejoicing. So what's the application? I looked at a pastor that I really respected and I wanted to see um, how he handled this text you know he preached for 10 weeks on this text I wasn't about to do that you can thank me later but what is the application I think Jesus lays it out for us over and over again be on guard be on guard be prepared a day is coming when Jesus will return for his people And the question I would just simply ask is, will you be among them? He's coming back for His people. Will you be among them? For those in Christ, this is not scary news that He is coming back. It is not scary when we read about the tribulation. It is not scary when we read through these things that can seem fearful about death and and destruction and, and rage and wrath because it is for us who are in Christ to know that we are children of God and that is not scary for us because we are His children and He will not treat us so. But for those who are not in Christ... 
This is a day of reckoning. For those who are of no relationship with him, to quote Jesus, let the reader understand. The reality is that this day of wrath, this day of reckoning, is for those who have not put their hope in Christ, that that there has been, since Adam and Eve sinned, a violation of God's law that has gone unpunished until Christ came. And when Christ came, He lived a perfect and holy life, and He died to pay a penalty for those who He offered Himself an atonement to make right with God, to make a satisfactory sacrifice on behalf of those who had committed sin, which is every single human being who has ever lived. He died to make, to make that right with God. And it says that those who receive that, those who believe that, those who acknowledge that they need that sacrifice and put their hope in Jesus, for to him who believes that God took the sacrifice of Jesus. If we confess with our mouth, we're told by Paul, that Jesus is Lord, that He is God. And we acknowledge and believe in our heart that He died and was raised from the dead. That sacrifice is ours. Punishment paid in full. But for those who reject that, that day of reckoning is coming where their unpaid for sin will come to a head. And Christ will come with the wrath of God and make punishment satisfied. He's told all of this for our well-being, and we're not to be alarmed or scared. It's easy to get caught up, but the gospel must be preached. And the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, and He offers full recompense. So I want to close with this thought in mind. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So what is our response to all of this? I think Paul says it best. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, he's dealing with some uh, misunderstandings that they have in regards to the end times. So in 1 Thessalonians, he addresses uh, uh, their confusion and fear that, that those who died before Jesus returned, uh, what's going to happen to them? They're, they're confused because they, they didn't make it till Jesus returned. How are they, you know, what, what's going to happen to them? And so Paul tells us that passage that uh, Jordan read for us earlier this morning and from verses 13 in chapter 4. I don't want you guys to be ignorant. We don't, we don't grieve when someone dies the way the world does because we have a hope. And then Paul goes on into chapter 5, and he tells us, Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Was that Paul's excuse so that he didn't have to address it because he didn't know either? Maybe. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And then here's the transition in this passage for those who are in Christ. But you are not in darkness, brothers, that the day should surprise you like a thief. Why? Because we know about it. Christ has told us about it. Paul is reminding us about it. It's not going to be sudden that, oh, wow, where did this Jesus guy come from? What is this all about? No, it's not going to be a surprise. For you are all children of light and children of the day. 
We are not of the night of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. For since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not, brothers and sisters, you should underline, highlight, whatever you need to do, this verse. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And I ask this, and this is how we want to kind of close. i got three things here. Are you living each moment with the light of the imminent return of Jesus? How do you live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ in the day of the Lord? I think there's three things. Number one, you live with the hope of resurrection. We should be filled with something that the world can never know because we have a hope that they do not have. They are miserable. They see a world that is on fire and being brought to absolute corruption and destruction filled with sin and despair, and it is an anxiety-filled world. But we know that if our flesh fails us and we are put in the grave, one day we will rise again and see Him face to face. We do not live in misery because we are not them. We are in the light. Second, you keep awake. What's the reality that Paul says? You don't do anything when you're asleep. And so the question I'd ask is, what are you doing right now for the Lord? Are you just sleeping through, slumbering until He returns? Are you sleeping through the end of your life? Are you just coasting? Or are you serving Him now? Whatever that might be, as we await His return. Blessed is the servant whose master returns and finds him faithfully serving. And last, he says, be sober. Drunk is recklessness. When the person is drunk, they have no control. How many people are recklessly wasting their talents and time while they wait for his return? I want to close with this very thought, the return of the king is good news. It is only good news to the believer. Therefore, the gospel must be preached. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you choose to foretell us the truth about what is coming. And while we may not understand it, we can know that in the midst of it, it will bring clarity. And Father, we thank you that you love your children so much that you give instructions in the midst of troubles. And we thank you so much that your Holy Spirit will aid us no matter our circumstances. And we worship and praise you because you love us so much that you will send your angels to gather your children and you will leave none behind. So Father, I pray that if there is any in here today that has not made their hope Jesus, 
that today would be that day of salvation when they would say, I recognize that Jesus did not need to die for me, but he chose to. And he willingly did it. And I accept that and I put my hope and my trust in what Jesus did and not in anything that I can do. Father, I pray that as we await your return, whether it is in our lifetime or in our children's or our grandchildren's lifetime, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in stewarding the gospel, that we would be awake and alert and not grow weary from the times and the seasons. Lord, would you, would you be so gracious to us that we might see the hope of salvation in our family and friends? Would you encourage us and show us the miraculous in seeing people who there was no hope now have a hope? Would you be praised in all that is said and done in our lives from now until you return again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.